All right, and we are rolling once again. Brother Kevin, we are back and we are ready to dive back into the deep end of the pool and discuss what it means and how one can go about reconciling science with Scripture. Yeah, I'm going to let you go ahead and jump into that deep end. I'm just going to sit on the uh, side of the pool here with my with my legs and feet in, and I'll just kind of watch you swim around. It's going to be fun. <laughs> All right. Yeah, it'll be a good time. So one of the things that we left the last episode off with, one of the things that we stated is we were, I recorded a new outro for that episode because originally the last episode was the first component of the entirety of a two-hour episode. And because of the length and because Kevin and I are trying to make a concerted effort to shorten these episodes to the uh, based on the feedback that our audience has given us, we decided to split it into two parts. And the original intention was to play that second half of that episode exactly where it left off. But in the interim between the airing of part one and the airing of part two, we received um, a lot of questions, which I anticipated would probably get some feedback. I thought when we went through marriage, divorce, and remarriage that we would get a ton of, of feedback and a lot of venom spewed our way, but that didn't happen. But And I won't, I won't say that it's venom that's been spewed our way, but there's been a lot of concern that's come our way about this one because we're going into some territory that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. We're, we're discussing some terms and some concepts that – that can put people on their toes if they ascribe to a particular form of biblical inerrancy, which is something else that we'll get into as we move forward. And anyway, because of some of the concerns and some of the questions that have been raised by some of our listeners, Kevin and I decided it would be wise to pump the brakes and spread this out a little more so we can get a little bit more into detail about it, spread the love across a few more episodes, and then have a Q&A devoted to this so that we can discuss these in more detail and really give this its due. And one of the things that made me decide that that was really a wise decision is one of the emails that we got at the very end, um, one of our listeners said that, you know, if what Lee is saying is true about Genesis, then it would destroy my faith in the book of Genesis. And that really gave me a lot of pause because Kevin, and, and you understand this, whenever you first messaged me and said, hey man, I think we might need to spread this out some. I was resistant to that idea. I was like, nah, man, it's good. What we recorded was good. We'll just let it go. But whenever I read that and you shared that with me, I was like, oh, man. Oh, wow. That's the last thing I want to be responsible for is causing someone to doubt their faith, because that's not what we're about on this podcast at all. We want to explore the boundaries of our faith. We want to explore faith and how we can reconcile those hard things that people deal with as we pursue God's grace. And that that to me, that that was really the the sticking point for me that made me realize, you know what, we do need to to slow our roll a little bit and and spread this out a little bit more. Yeah, you and I were talking this past week about how the reason why we're doing this podcast is, you know, the whole theme is exploring faith and pursuing grace because we understand there are so many different positions and beliefs and just doctrinal stances that different Christians take. And we think it's important to understand what those are because most Christians have been pretty isolated to those views. They've only been able to hear what they have heard their whole life. And I think it's important to listen to what other Christians have to say because they have studied just like we've studied and oftentimes come to oppositional conclusions. And we want to know why. Uh, we're interested in in why they've done that. And in some, some instances, we change uh, in fact, in many instances, I've changed because I realized a lot of the ways that I viewed Scripture was flawed in my whole paradigm. So I kind of had a whole paradigm framework shift. But 
in when it comes to creation and things of this, I would say most people are like, like myself. You know, I'm not a science guy, as we discussed in the first episode. Uh, it really doesn't bother me one way or the other because I've not really studied this in detail. Whether the creational count is literal, whether it's not, doesn't really do much for me one way or the other. It doesn't really shake me. I'm I'm good either way because I think God could use parables to explain what he does. In fact, Jesus predominantly used parables in the gospel accounts when he's describing truths. And so certainly I think God could do that as well But in the Old Testament. But I, I think you had said something, Lee, this week that really rung true to me, and that is this is not to try to convince people. This is if yeah. there's, there are people out there who have studied science in depth and they believe that they have to choose one or the other this is an alternative to help people who may have a faith crisis to know that there are actual Christians out there, Lee being one of them, who believes that the Bible is the inspired word of God, but that it is not some of the parts, particularly what we've been discussing creation, is not literal history, but that that does not mean that the Bible is not inspired. That doesn't mean we can't trust the Bible or anything of that nature. It just takes a different look that parallels more the ancient Near Eastern literature, which the Bible oftentimes does, and understands it in that framework. And so these podcast episodes on faith and science are not meant to to change people's position so that they can, quote unquote, be right. It's to give an alternative for people who may see some inconsistencies in their own faith. And this is an alternative that could possibly help with some of those inconsistencies. Well, and it helped me. And I'm so glad that you said that and that you said it that way, because that's exactly what I'm about with this. If you're listening to this and you are convinced that Genesis is literal history, that the world was created in six literal days, and you're at peace with that, and that's not causing you any consternation whatsoever, then this these episodes are not for you. My goal is not to say, oh, but you're wrong. You've got it all wrong. You don't know what you're talking. That's not what I'm here to do at all. If you're good with that and your faith is sure, hold on to that. Lean into that. And really and honestly, I really don't think, Kevin, that this is really a topic that's worth arguing about. I don't think it's a topic that's worth fighting about. But one of the things that you said is, is that there are some people that you know, that have an understanding of science or they come into a better understanding of science. And one thing that I do think is worth fighting about is fighting against the idea that there's this dichotomy that exists between science and faith that you have to choose one or the other, because we are often, at least I know I was, I can't speak for you, but I would assume that you were, but we're brought up many times to believe that that's the case. And then how many of our young people are warned about the dangers of taking these science classes, especially if they're going into a STEM field, you know, be careful when you get to college, don't let these anatomy classes, don't let these biology classes, don't let these geology classes, don't let these, you know, physics classes, don't let them shake your faith. Don't let them shake your faith. And how many of our best and brightest go there and they face a faith crisis because of it? They get there into college. I mean, dude, that's me. That was me. And I didn't have any of this understanding of theology and this other lens through which this could be viewed that reconciles this in a very nice, neat package. I didn't have any of that. None of that was available to me. I had no awareness of it. I thought I had to choose. And there are some people that will choose. Well, I'm just not going to go into that field because it's way too much of a challenge. 
or they leave their faith behind. And anything that causes someone to leave their faith behind, it's tragic. It is a tragedy of the highest degree, and it ought not be that way. And that's who this podcast is for. I'm not trying to convince anybody that their view of Genesis is wrong and mine is right. Because theirs very well could be right and mine could be wrong. Mine could be right and theirs could be wrong. But in the end, it doesn't really matter all that much. And as we go through this series, we're going to get to that. Well, and one thing before we really delve in, and I know we're giving a longer introduction here, but we're doing this on purpose because I think this is a topic that can really shake people if they hear some of the statements that we make. Because Lee and I have been studying this stuff for a while. Lee, a lot more than me. I've, I have been studying a lot on the ancient Near Eastern literature. Um, I, in fact, in preparing for my book, I've, I've read over 30 books pr- specifically dealing with this from both people who uh, are Christians and those who are not, those who are, are scholars, those who are simply you know just good Bible students or ministers. Uh, those who are, are critics. And so I've tried to really just get a good understanding of this. And so some of the language Lee and I use, Lee and I know what we're talking about, but if someone, in fact, there were, in fact, the latter episode that we did or the last part of the first episode that we're not going to air, I told Lee, I said, man, I just said, I said, I said a lot of things that I think would just spook people and not, not because I don't believe them, but because I didn't give enough context before I said it. And that's something the more that I, look at these concepts that if we don't give proper context for people to understand what we're saying, where we're coming from, it it could hinder people. And I know that's not what Lee wants to do. And that's certainly, you know, not what either one of us want to happen. But I want to say just two things. The first thing is that we acknowledge that there are other Christians out there who hold differing positions on these issues on science who also believe they can reconcile faith and science. They just do so in a completely different way and a different method. And so that's why Lee is presenting this, because if you have heard those and you've gone to those Christian apologetics classes and they're just really not convincing, they seem to either be overstating their case, maybe special pleading at times. It's really not convincing to you. Don't lose your faith. Know that there is another alternative of how you can understand this. And so we're not saying that other Christians who disagree with Lee aren't trying to reconcile science and the Bible. It's just that they do it a completely different way than what Lee's doing and what many other scholars have done and are are doing and currently believe. But the second thing is I used to say that if, you know, a lot of these issues, we would say, well, it, it doesn't really matter. And I think we have to be careful when we say that an issue doesn't matter, because it's one thing to say, I don't think this issue whatever view you hold on it is going to separate you from Christ. That's one thing. But it's another to say that this issue doesn't matter because I think every issue matters. I think every single issue matters to somebody. There is somebody out there who who has a, who has a faith crisis in some way on some issue. And so I, I think the more that I study this whole idea of saying, well, this doesn't really matter. I'm more careful. I, I now use different terminology. I say that, this issue, regardless of what you believe, doesn't affect your ultimate relationship with Jesus, but this issue does matter. And so I, I think that it's important to make that distinction for people listening that all issues matter. They really do. And we have to be careful with trying to say, oh, that issue doesn't matter. Just because that may not affect your relationship with Jesus or shouldn't affect your relationship with Jesus doesn't mean that it doesn't. I mean, meat sacrificed to idols 
Paul ultimately said, whatever you believe on this doesn't does not negate your relationship with Jesus. But that issue, meat sacrificed to idols, did matter. Paul spent a lot of time writing about it. So it's important to discuss things because people need to hear different perspectives and different understandings so they can come to their own conclusion on these matters. Well, and I'm so glad you said that too, dude, because that's exactly what I mean. That's exactly what you mean whenever we say this doesn't matter until it does. Because if it doesn't affect your faith in Jesus, it doesn't matter to you, but it may matter and probably does matter to somebody. So I really like how you put that because it all matters. The question is, does it affect your relationship with Jesus? Does it affect you drawing near unto God? And for me, all of this science stuff did. The answers postulated by Answers in Genesis and some of the other apologetics groups that work to reconcile science and faith, their answers are satisfactory to a lot of people, but a lot of their answers weren't satisfactory to me. Like you said, it seemed like special pleading. And so for that reason and for some other reasons, there were some other understandings that I needed that I needed to find. And over the course of the years, what we are discussing in this is how I, Lee Grant, was able to reconcile these issues in my own mind to the health and the salvation of my own faith. This is what kept me, this line of reasoning is what kept me from losing my faith. And if you're not in that boat, then don't worry about it. But if you are, this could be helpful for you. If you know someone who is in a similar boat that I was in, this may be helpful for them. And I would love to visit with anybody that has any questions about this. I'd love to chat with you about it. So reach out and we'll talk. But one of the points of concern that that was raised is the classification of Genesis as myth. Whenever we talked about the different ways through which Genesis is viewed as literary or, or literal history, historiography, or, or myth, there are people that took issue with that word myth. And I, I felt like that I did a pretty good job qualifying what I meant by myth. But if there are people that still had issue with that, then maybe I didn't. So I'd, I'd like to kind of retread that if that's okay with you. Yeah, no, yeah, go ahead, go into that a little bit because that does spook people when they hear the word myth. I, I've started to use the word parable because that's a biblical uh, understanding. I'm like, that'll just yeah, help everybody. Yeah. You know, I know, yeah. I know it's not always, but it, it kind of helps people, it softens it a little bit because everybody's like, oh yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, Jesus used parables, but for whatever reason, God couldn't have done it under the Old Testament. <laughs> well, exactly. And, and whenever and whenever I say myth, and I'm going to try really hard to just eliminate that word from my vocabulary for the remainder of this, I don't mean myth in the colloquial term that we commonly refer to it as. What I mean is, is as a parable, as mythicized history, that might be a better way to put it, parabolic history or or uh, historiography in a different sense that goes beyond that national identity purpose that we talked about in, in the last episode. And by that, what I mean is that Genesis, and, and I, and I want to clear this up, I do believe that Genesis is history. I do believe that Genesis is historical, but I don't believe that Genesis describes literal history. I don't take it as literal history. To me, it seems, and, and to a lot of other people, a lot of folks I've read after, because this isn't something I just made up in my own imagination. I didn't just come up with this on my own. Oh, dur, 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 dur. here's the guy in Southern Oklahoma who's got all the answers. I'm just going to call it this because it makes me feel warm and fuzzy. Now, these are people that are way smarter than me that, that I've read after, and I've done a lot of reading on this. 
And they refer to this as literary history, not literal history. And the way they describe that is, is that Genesis is a retelling of the past that makes a theological point. It's not a literal retelling of exactly what happened. Uh, The way Walton puts it is, is that Genesis purpose isn't to tell us how God created in material terms or how long it took. And that's something that's the overarching point that he makes in uh, his book, The Lost World of uh, Genesis one. Genesis is a true account. It's true. But like other ancient narratives, it uses vivid imagery to describe the past events in a mythicized or parabolic narrative form. And if we look at Genesis through that light, then we would understand that it's silent on the scientific questions that we often seek answers for. I mean, yes, Genesis describes the process by which the earth is created, or it describes a process by which earth is created. But if we take Genesis as literal history that speaks scientifically to the absolute truth regarding how God created all things, then we run into some difficulties. And if we look at Genesis one and then we compare it to Genesis two, some of those seem to jump out at us. Now, I don't know how you were taught to reconcile this, Kevin, but whenever I looked at Genesis one and the way I was taught this growing up and what I always heard is that Genesis one gives you the overview and the cosmic overview of the order in which God created everything. You see a tight orderly fashion in which creation comes into being. But then Genesis 2 just goes into a little bit more details. Like Genesis 1 is the outline, and Genesis 2 is, is the details of some of those, some of that that occurred in the outline. Would, would you say that that's a fair way that some people have been taught to reconcile that? That's exactly the way that I was always taught to read Genesis 1 and 2, because I remember as a kid, and when I say kid, I, I would guess I was early teens. I was uh, reading the Bible in chronological order for church one year, and... I read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and for the first time it dawned on me, this this is different. This is really different. And uh, when I was, you know, being 13, 14, I had not really gone into much detail about Genesis 1 and 2. So I remember asking questions to, to some of my friends who were older than I am, or I was at church, and I would ask them, okay, how do you answer this? And of course, they didn't know. And then we had talked to my youth minister and and he would give me some different articles and things like that. And so at preaching school, that's when it really was taught that this is Genesis 1, as you just put it. It's kind of the gives you the snapshot. And then Genesis 2 fills in some of the details so that we have more or less the complete picture of Genesis. So, yeah, I would say that if people are listening to this and they never have even realized that before, before you even go further, I would encourage you to pause this podcast episode and go read Genesis chapter one and two so that you understand what Lee's about to talk about. Yeah. And if we weren't already almost 20 minutes into this episode, I'd just read Genesis one and two right now, but we're almost 20 minutes into it. So for the interest of time, we won't. But as an overview, you see the creation account given in Genesis one in which the cosmos are formed. And then that first creation account ends around Genesis chapter two. It ends in Genesis chapter two and it's, oh man, now I'm going blank. It's either verse three. Yeah, it's verse four. So one of the things that, that we just talked about is that idea that Genesis two is the reconciliation or, or the more, there's more detail in Genesis two um, given 
And that's its purpose is to make clear in Genesis one, what happened. Genesis one's the overview. Genesis two's the details. The issue with that is, is that uh, from what I found, and there may be one out there that I haven't found yet. I'm not saying that I've read after every one of them that I've read every one of them in the world and none of them say this, but there's been no Hebrew scholar that I have found, no Jewish scholar that I have found that says that. Every Jewish scholar that I have read after says that there are two creation accounts in Genesis. Every one of them does. Most Hebrew scholars, bona fide Hebrew scholars in theological circles, they recognize that there are two separate creation accounts in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. One of the clues to that is, is that God is referred to as uh, Elohim in Genesis 1. That's the Hebrew word used for God. But then in Genesis 2, Yahweh is used. So you have two different names for gods. And coincidentally, that's why some people believe that Moses was an editor or compiler rather than the actual writer and that there were multiple writers. But we won't get into that now. We'll cover that in the Q&A. But, and yes, we are going to do a Q&A, guys. But in either case, there's evidence literarily within the narrative itself that points us in the direction that we're dealing with two different stories. We're dealing with two different accounts. And some of the differences, some of the things that jump out at that at us that demonstrate that. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 11, plants are created before man. In Genesis chapter 2 and verses 5 through 11, man is created before vegetation. Now, there are some people that say, oh, no, 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 that's not the case. It's just talking about how the plants grew and God put the plants in that particular place. But I'm going to go ahead and read this passage, if it's okay with you, in Genesis 2. And over here in Genesis 2 and uh, verse 5, beginning in there and reading through verse 11. In 4, that's where the first creation story ends. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And then you have a comma. And then in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So you have a statement there. In the Hebrew, there's no punctuation. So what most Hebrew scholars believe is that in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4, that this statement, this is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created, that is the end of that first creation account because it syncs up with what the Bible says in Genesis 1 and 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And then at the second half of verse 4, that's where the second creation story begins. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So the focus here is on the earth. Before any plant of the field was in the earth. And before any herb of the field had grown. So at this point, according to the second account, there is no plant life. And the reason that there's no plant life is in the latter half of verse 5. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. So in verse 5, I'm just going to read that there, and we'll just leave it at that. We don't need to read Genesis you know, 2, 5, all the way through 11. But the point is this. In Genesis 1 and 11, we see that the plant life is created before men, but in Genesis 2 and 5, that... Man is created before plant life. There is no plant life because there is no man. That's one of the things that, that it says. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 24, beasts are created before man. But in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 19, man is created before the beasts. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 9, the waters are separated before vegetation. But in Genesis chapter 2 and verses 8 and in verse 10, the waters are established after vegetation is established.
So the issue that you run into, and, and there's a few more there that we won't get into. Well, we will here in a minute, but if we take Genesis to be a literal retelling of history, according to our modern conception of what history is, how do we reconcile those two different creation accounts with one another? Because for me at this point, whenever I saw this and realized this, whenever I was a kid and you know, the older we get, the older kids are like, I'm in my mid thirties now. So people that are in their early twenties are kids. So yeah. <laughs> How do we reconcile that? And the answer that, well, Genesis 2 is just giving us the details of Genesis 1. That wasn't a satisfactory answer for me anymore. That colors how Genesis is viewed. That colors the genre of Genesis, at least in my mind. For me, Genesis needs to be looked at in a different way because this is not how a literal retelling of history works in our modern conception. It's not as if there was a journalist there in the gardener that the Holy Spirit was revealing information to the writer of Genesis in such a way like a journalist would write down that information or as a historian would record history. It, it's, it's not there. And these, these missteps, I guess, if we want to call it that for lack of a better term between Genesis one and two, these inconsistencies there, they illustrate that point to me. And the answer that I was raised up with just doesn't work. But if we look at that timeline, there's, there's clear contradictions there. The order of creation is fundamentally different as we just read, but also the substrate of creation is in Genesis one versus Genesis two is different. You have a watery void in Genesis one. You have the waters of chaos that, that you have mentioned before. And in Genesis two, you have a barren desert. And those two things are fundamentally different. Genesis one contains that couplet form that was found in ancient poetry that we talked about last week. And that is something that is irrefutable. Genesis 2 is void of that same literary device. It doesn't exist in Genesis 2. Genesis 1 is tightly narrated. It gives an orderly boom, 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 boom order of events in what happened. And in this, you see reflected a transcendent God that is above all and that tames chaos itself, while Genesis 2 presents a God that's a little more relatable. This is a God who's a planner. This is a God who molds the, the dust of the earth into things like a potter. Genesis 1 puts an emphasis on that heavenly aspect of creation. God created the heavens and the earth. And the emphasis in Genesis 2, the creation story is on earth. God created the earth and the heavens. So you see a different substrate. You see a different focus and a different emphasis on the narrative. You see a disconnect between the two timelines. All of these things indicate that there is a difference, a fundamental difference in these creation accounts because they are two creation accounts. And David Bacovi, He's a PhD in Hebrew Bible in the ancient Near East, and he's a professor of Bible and Jewish studies at Utah University. He said this of Genesis in a, of the first creation account. It concludes with a summary statement that brackets the account. This is the story of heaven and earth when they were created. The second story begins in the same verse with a similar clause when the Lord God made earth and heaven. Though both narratives commence with the same word pair, they place the terms in the opposite order. Perhaps an editor who wanted the first account to depict a heavenly creation and the second an earthly creation reversed the superscription in Genesis 1 to read heaven and earth. Such a switch works because the first story is much more cosmic in its orientation than the second. Genesis 1, for example, depicts the creation of an expanse separating the heavenly from the earthly waters as well as celestial objects such as the sun, moon, and stars, while in contrast, the second story depicts not the creation of the sky or heavenly sphere, but the formation of shrubs, fields, earth, and a garden. In his work, Two Creations in Genesis. 
so do you have anything you want to add to that at this point? Yeah. So let me, let me just interject this. So what is the response then for people who do believe in a literal creation? They don't believe that this contradicts. What are their reasons or explanations? How do they, how do they harmonize this? I'm not saying that you believe it's correct, but what are some of their reasons for believing that this could be harmonized? Well, with some of the reasons have to do, and brother, I haven't read some of those counterpoints in a long time. It's been years. So I'm probably not going to give these arguments justice. I would encourage everybody to Google these and to Google, you know, two creation accounts, Genesis one, Genesis two, and see what you find out there. And I probably should have, probably should have let you know, I was going to ask you that beforehand. No, dude, it's cool. It's cool. (laughs) No, it's all good. But, but the thing is, is that, that, be careful when you're on Google because you can find anything you want on the internet. So just, just be careful, make sure that any source you're reading is a good, it's a good source and you should be able to know how to tell the difference between a good source and a bad source, but we won't get into all that. But I know one of the ways that it's harmonized is the idea that the plants and the shrubs weren't created before man has to do with the idea that they were created before man, but that, you know, Adam just, you know, hadn't been formed yet. And in this particular region where God creates man, there just wasn't any plant life in that location yet. And then after Adam was created, it it was, it was a local event rather than a global event. But the problem with that is, is that in Genesis chapter two and in verse five, it plainly states before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown period. That's a global statement. So the idea that this is a local phenomenon, it just, it doesn't work. Um, and, and that's pr- pretty much the primary argument that's made against this line of reasoning that, that attempts to harmonize all of this so that- is that the waters were created first, but they just weren't directed locally through the garden or, or from the region into Eden yet. That Genesis 2 speaks of a regional um, continuation of creation while Genesis one is, uh, concerned with the cosmological and grand global scale of the creation. Okay. I got you. Yeah. Like I said, for me though, that, and that answer may work for some people. If that works for you, that's awesome. For me, it didn't work just because the Bible plainly says that that's not the case. And whenever you get into verses 18, as it relates to the beast being created before man, Man has been, you know, created at this point. Um, God plants in verse seven, God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed in his nostrils of the breath of life and man became a living being. And then you come down into verse 18. The Lord God says, it's not good that man should be alone. It's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And then what happens next in verse 19, the Bible says, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air, even though the birds were created first. But anyway, every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. Now, there are people that say, well, what this is, is this is just saying what God had already done. But right here, God is saying he wants to bring a helper to him. He wants a helper comparable to him. He doesn't want man to be alone. By all accounts, this second account is saying at this point, man is the first created biological organism that God has made. Man is first in the creation account, which theologically would put man at the place of primacy in God's created order. 
And man, is that the pinnacle of creation in the first creation account? He's the pinnacle and the crowning achievement of God's creation. It's only after man's created in Genesis 1 that the creation is declared to be very good. God saw it and it was good. God saw it and it was good. Man's created, God saw it and it was very good. In the second creation account, man's created first because that's God's primary goal. So no matter how you want to slice it, man is the crowning achievement and is the most important aspect of God's creative act in this. But whenever you look at this, man is still alone in the second account. Out of this, God creates these beasts so that man won't be alone. Adam gives names to all of the beasts. He gives names to all of the birds but for Adam, there was not found a helper, helper comparable to him. So in this act, the beasts are made. God parades them in front of Adam. Adam names them, but there was none found comparable to him. And then the wonderful event happens in which woman is created. And Adam finds that compliment there, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She was taken out of man. And that to me, that's a beautiful story, man. That is a beautiful illustration of how man and woman are complementary together, how man is incomplete without woman and woman is incomplete without the man. That's a beautiful point that's made in the story. And, but even so we're, we're getting a field here because I'm easily distracted and I'm tired. I adjusted a lot of people today. So squirrel, Hey, there it is. But that, to answer your question, that's how some people work to reconcile is they say, well, Genesis 2 deals with a regional continuation of creation where Genesis 1 is global, but that just doesn't work whenever you really dig into it. Okay. Yeah, that sounds good. Gives, gives people an understanding of where others would come from on that. Yeah. And, and like I said, if that works for you, it, that's awesome, but it didn't work for me. And it became harder with this to accept Genesis as literal history. It became harder for me. Now, if you're listening and you accept Genesis as literal history, and I don't want to overemphasize this at all, hold on to that. If you're good with it and this is like, you know what? I'm rejecting what you say. I don't buy it. Then don't buy it. That's fine. But if you're struggling with this, hopefully this is an answer that gives you a little bit of peace because it gave me peace as I studied this idea. It became harder for me to accept Genesis as literal history because if Genesis isn't literal history, well, then what does that do with the rest of Scripture? And we're going to get into that in part three and part four of this. But another question that came up in my mind, if Genesis isn't literal history and that's not what this is all about, then how can I in good conscience make scientific claims about the content of Genesis? How can I continue to believe that Genesis reveals indubitable scientific truth about the world and its creation? Because it seems like now in hindsight that the Holy spirit had something else in mind when he inspired the author of Genesis to compile these stories in a written form and recognizing that Genesis is not literal objective history as we define it today for me and for a lot of other people seems to be the best way to approach the book. If we approach Genesis and really this can extend to the rest of the Bible as a teacher of scientific truths with the privilege of our post enlightenment philosophy, as it relates to science, then there are a lot of problems that we run into. And so this is are, something we got into. Those, yeah. So what are some of those issues? Cause I know this is something that a lot of people are, have asked me about and are interested to hear. So what, what are some of those things that you would say uh, factually and universally, what we know just doesn't compute with what some of the statements that we read of in the Bible. Well, interestingly enough, this is where the last podcast left off. So we're getting there now, guys. Um, 
but what what happens though to answer your question is is that we're going to find ourselves averring some things and standing on some things we're going to have to accept some things that we know for a fact are not good science they're not in line with reality they are not scientifically true in the least and the first of those is is that the earth is immovable the Bible teaches in several places that the earth does not move. In Psalm 104 and verse 5, and Isaiah 45 and 18, and 1 Chronicles 16 and 30, and Psalm 93 and 1, and Psalm 96 and 10, the Bible teaches that the earth is set, that it does not move. And there have been people that have tried to reconcile this idea by saying, well, what that means is that the earth is set in its orbit, that the earth is not going to be thrown out of its orbit because of the forces of gravity with the earth and the sun and Jupiter and the way gravity works and physics works, the earth is set. It is immovable. But that's not what the authors of this had in mind. That isn't what they were thinking. They were thinking immovable in the same sense that you and I think something is immovable. Mount Everest is immovable. You can't move it. I mean, if you get enough dynamite, you can blow it up. But if you're just going to go over there and push on it, that puppy ain't going nowhere. And that's what the authors had in mind whenever they said something was immovable. We know that the earth moves. Another thing that we see is this idea that the earth is flat and circular. And you and I had a really good conversation about this idea that I, I think I want to flesh this out a little more if that's okay with you. Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah. You see that in Isaiah 40 and 22 and Job 26 and verse 10, Proverbs 8 and 27, even in the creation account in Genesis, you see the idea of a firmament presented wherever the waters are separated. Um, that word firmament that's translated in the English Standard Version, I think, expanse, that's a word that literally means a hard dome. And all of the ancient Near Eastern cultures believe that the earth was flat and it had a hard dome over it that kept the waters above separated from the waters below. And one of the things that we had discussed, and you did a little more digging into this and found some information, and we had a really good talk about this the other day. And one of the things that we see is that Matthew 4 and 8 implies a flat earth. And that's one of the things that we had discussed and we had talked about in the original recording of this. And the idea is, is that whenever Jesus is led up on that high mountain to be tempted of Satan during his temptation in the wilderness, Satan shows him all the kingdoms of the earth, which if the earth is a sphere, it's not possible. If the earth is flat and I get up on a high point in the United States, I should be able to get a telescope and point it across the Atlantic Ocean and see London. I should be able to go to the East Coast at the edge of the water and get a telescope and point it in London's direction. If I know where London is, I can point it there and I should be able to see the landmass of England. But I can't because it's hidden from me by the, by the curve of the earth. And... If you're up on that high mountain and you're looking out and you see all the nations from that exceedingly high point, well, there's an implication there that to see all of those kingdoms of the earth, that the earth then must be flat. And you found some interesting information that I'm going to let you share that if that's okay. Yeah. So I, I was looking at this because, you know, Lee, Lee and I are always trying to be fair. Uh, we really are. I mean, I'm not saying that we don't bring our own prejudice to the table because we do. And Oh, we do. Absolutely. The, the, the best, the only, the best we can, we can say is we're, we're trying, <laughs> but even, even then we understand that just as any human, there's going to be bias and prejudice when we're discussing certain views. But one of the things I found interesting, this was actually on a website, creation.com, and it disagrees with a lot of what Lee is saying. And so I would encourage you to listen to what Lee's saying, but then also check them out so you can compare and contrast because we're not trying to 
to hide or keep anybody in the dark or isolated. We want people to really search these things out themselves. And the, uh, the article is actually entitled The Flat Earth Myth. And they spend a, a good amount of time showing that the early church, by and large, believed that the earth was, was round. And they go quite, quite a bit to you know, different early church history, and especially they spend a lot of time in the, the medieval times to show that this idea that a lot of Christians believe that the earth was flat is just not true. Now, there were Christians who did believe the earth was flat, and they, in the article, they acknowledge that, uh, Lactanius being one of those. But they also give evidence as to why most Christians, especially starting at least in three to four hundred CE, did believe that the earth was probably round, uh, at least the scholarship. I'm, a, I'm sure most Christians probably could care less because this wasn't really on their on their map to discuss, but the ones who did. Yeah, they were trying not to die. Yeah, I don't really think that was, you know, a big a big issue to them. But, um, you know, he, go, he goes back, uh, or the author of this article, gives some reason as to why it, we should believe that most Christians, at least the scholars who did write about this, believe that the earth was round. And, and it's interesting because they even go to the, um, I'm trying to pull this up here so that I can just at least cite some of these references that they give. The uh, as early as the fifth century, they show how the medieval European kings carried a symbol that was uh, that was shaped like a globe, the Globus uh, Christus, I believe, or it's the cross-bearing orb, and it was a Christian symbol of royal power. And the orb usually was a golden spear, which represented the earth, and then it hung on the the cross, which is supposed to be Jesus just a representation of Jesus ruling over the round earth. And so they go through and they give a lot of diff these different instances in which we shouldn't really overstate the case and say Christians up until a few hundred years ago always believed the earth was flat. But Lee brought up an interesting point, and that is we're not concerned with what Christians believed. We're concerned with what people believed in the ancient Near Eastern times, including the Jews, right? Yes, exactly. And I, and, and, and I think that this is personally, um, I think this is where the article falls flat because it does more to explain that, uh, you know, the examples of using Christians as, as uh, I guess, not being, you know, being dummies and not really believing that the earth was round because of the Bible has kind of been a myth. And I think they do a good a good job at proving that, that a lot of people Absolutely, have yes. overstated that case. But once again, the article really doesn't deal with, well, what did the ancient Near Eastern peoples believe about the cosmos? We understand as time progressed, a lot of the the Greeks, and, 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 I, and I want you to get into that a little bit, did see that the earth was round and started to, to believe that the earth was round. But before that time, it, it appears that everyone pretty much believed the earth was flat. Yeah. And, and they did. And the way that we know that is because people like going to dusty deserts and old cities and digging in the dirt and finding, you know, dead civilizations, old stuff and the old stuff that they have dug up illustrates that everyone in the biblical era, in the ancient Near East, practically everyone, in fact, everyone in that region in which the Bible is set, it, they all believed that the earth was flat and it had a hard dome over it. That is 
consent there's great consensus on that. Yeah, when did when did we see that people started to believe that the earth was round and and and, that, and it wasn't flat? It actually happened around the 6th century uh, BC. Pythagoras was the first person that postulated it mathematically and we know Pythagoras, he was the founder of the Pythagorean theorem in algebra, the bane of many, you know, high school juniors and seniors and early college algebra students. Um, but he was the earliest proponent of a spherical earth and Ptolemy. He was a great, uh, astronomer in the second century BC. He wrote the Amalgus and formed the star catalog and things like that. Um, he believed in a round earth and he postulated around earth, but around 250 BC, Eratosthenes, he was a Greek scholar, um, not a scholar of Greek, but he was an actual Greek guy who was a scholar. Um, he, performed an experiment that proved the earth was round. And I'm not going to get into that, but you can just search Eratosthenes stick experiment. Aristotle had mathematical theories that Eratosthenes worked off of. So the ancient Greeks and into the Hellenistic period, they believed it, that the earth was round. They knew that the earth was round mathematically. Um, but also you have uh, the Hellenistic Greeks that were, or the Hellenistic Jews that were influenced by Greek. They did believe in a round earth. And then you have the ancient uh, other Jews that believed that the earth was flat because of what the scriptures taught. Uh, Chrysostom and Athanasius and Lactanius, as you mentioned, and also Augustine all believed in a flat earth as well. So while the spherical earth was largely regarded as a truth in ancient Greece and the medieval church believed it as well, there's a lot of evidence that indicates that ancient Jews and ancient Christians didn't believe it. It was hardly a consensual or a consensus thing or a consensus on that, on that part. But even so, what we are interested in, like you said, is not really what the medieval Jews believed or what the medieval Christians believed. What we're interested in is what did people in the ancient Near East believe when the Bible was written and they believed that the earth was flat. They absolutely believed it. In fact, uh, Dennis Limereux, he is a um, theologian. He teaches at the University of Toronto. He's written several really good books. He's a Christian and he's not one of these theologians who's an atheist and just is interested in the Bible. He is a, he's a believer in Jesus. And he says in one of his books that in 2,500 references to the earth and land in scripture, it is never referred to as a sphere or a ball in either the Greek or the Hebrew. To me, that's pretty powerful. So we talked about the earth being immovable. We talked about the earth being flat and circular. It's also the idea that the earth has ends and is set on foundations. A circle has no end, or rather I should say a sphere has no end, but a circle does. And Job 28 and 24, Job 9 and 6, Psalm 75 and 3, Psalm 104 and verse 5, Proverbs 30 and verse 4, Isaiah 41 and verses 8 and 9, all teach that the earth does have ends and is set on foundations. Now, there are people that say, oh, well, when it talks about the ends of the earth, that's a figure of speech. Well, all figures of speech only become figures of speech once something is no longer believed to be a concrete truth. It still persists as a figure of speech. If I say I'm walking in tall cotton, well, that means that life is really good right now. But that figure of speech arises from the concrete concept that back in the Depression, if you had a bumper crop of cotton, you were going to be able to eat that winter. And the more your cotton grew, the more cotton you had to harvest. So all figures of speech are based in part in, in reality or something that was considered to be reality. So whenever the Bible speaks of the earth having ends and being set on foundations, we see anthropologically that people believe that. 
Um, the Bible also says that the underworld exists below the surface of the earth in Job chapter 7 and verse 9, Job chapter 11 and verse 8, Psalm 9 and 17, 1 Kings 2 and 9, Numbers 16 and verses 31 through 33, Luke 10 and 15, and a ton of other verses. We see the Bible teach that there's a circumferential sea that's flat and surrounds the earth in Proverbs 8 and 27 and Job 26 and 10. In the New Testament, Jesus himself says that the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds. And there have been some people that have said, well, what Jesus meant by that is that the mustard seed is the least of all seeds, because smallest can also mean least. But that doesn't really fit with the context of what Jesus is, is talking about. That's That to me seems to be special pleading. But even in another place, in John 12 and 24, Jesus says that seeds die before germination. When he talks about how can you know something happen unless a seed falls to the ground and it dies before it sprouts, you know, speaking, of course, parabolically, but we know that seeds don't die before they germinate now. Another thing, and you and I were talking a little bit about this before we hit record, is the idea in Leviticus that bats are birds and rabbits are ruminants. And there are some people who have said, well, you know, the Linnaeus classification system didn't exist back then, and bats belong to, you know, the same phylum, but a different genus and species than what birds do. So you can't really make that. It's not really a fair argument. And I can see the argument there. But at the same time, the Bible says that rabbits are ruminants and rabbits are most definitely not ruminants. I mean, they can appear to be ruminants because they, you know, their mouths are always moving, but they don't chew the cud. They literally do not chew the cud. And the Bible says that they do chew the cud. Another thing that we see is the idea that males have reproductive seed. In Leviticus 15 and 16 and verse 32, Leviticus 12 and 2, Hebrews 11 and verses 11 and 12, and the idea in ancient reproductive physiology, one of the things that people believed is that males had seed, but that females did not have reproductive seed. And you can see this referenced in Genesis 25 and verse 21, Luke 23 and verse 29, Psalm 127 verses 3 and 5. And the reason for that is, is anytime a woman couldn't bear children, what was she referred to as? Barren. She was called barren. What did you refer, how did you refer to a field that wouldn't grow crops? was barren. It was barren. It was an agricultural term that was applied to reproductive physiology. And Dennis Lemoreau, he gets into this in another one of his books. I can't remember which one off the top of my head, but he discusses how in ancient, in the ancient Near East, the conception of physiological reproduction had to do with a man depositing his seed into the fertile ground of a woman. And we even use that term today. If a woman can't have a child, we say she's infertile. Yeah. And that's not a reference to the seed as much as that's a reference to the ground. So once again, we have a figure of speech that has persisted for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. The idea is that men would plant that seed. And if the female couldn't bear children, she was barren like a barren field. And Troy Martin talks about this in one of his articles. And a Greek writer, um, Aeschylus, he said in 500 BC, the mother is no parent of that which is called her child, but only the nurse of the new planted seed that grows. The parent is he who mounts. She preserves a stranger's seed if no God interferes. And Dennis Lemoreau mentions that in his uh, chapter on ancient science in the book of God's words in his book, Evolution, Scripture, and Nature Say Yes. Um, another thing is land animals are sprouted from the earth in Genesis 1 and 24. And I don't know if you ever noticed that. Let the earth bring forth these animals. I don't know if that's something that you ever noticed, but it's something that jumped out to me in recent years. And then finally, and I really like this one because it's in my wheelhouse. This is in my area of expertise. 
is the Bible teaches that our emotions come from our heart and our other organs. Genesis 6 and 5 talks about how the you know ideology or the thoughts of the hearts of men was only evil continually, and that's why God destroyed the earth. In Genesis 45 and verse 26, uh, Psalm 7 and 9 refers to the reins or the kidneys as the source of, of emotions. And the same thing in Psalm 16 and verse 7, when our emotions come from our brain and specific areas of our brain. We know that now. And in ancient Hebrew, they didn't even have a word for brain. So this is a concept that was completely foreign to them. And in, in, uh, on another note that's kind of interesting, as it relates to physiology, ancient concepts of physiology, the idea that they had was is that the brain was actually where seminal fluid was created in the man and it was generated and that's the source of seminal fluid. That's why the Egyptians would just take the brain and toss it. It had no value when they would mummify somebody and that whenever puberty hit and the testicles began to grow, that they would drop and that weight would pull the seminal cords from the brain to the testes taut and that's how semen would descend. So it's it's really interesting when you read that that was how people thought, and it makes perfect sense that those men who authored the Bible would think that as well. So so let me ask you this, if it's okay to inter- yeah. interject something here. So you know, and I and I'm wanting the audience to really know I don't really have a position yet on the creation, whether it's literal or whether it was uh, more of a a myth storytelling, but. Here's, a parable. Here, here's one thing that I do believe is correct that what Lee is saying here, because what people are going to do more than likely, because this is what I did, is when you hear all of these statements that Lee just brought up, if you research these, what you're going to find is most people who look at this, most Christians who address this in a different way are going to are going to write these off. They're going to dismiss these and say, well, Look, a lot of this is figurative. A lot of this is written in, in, you know, it's it's obviously more or less poetic. It's not meant to be taken as as literal science. And the moment someone does that, they are actually affirming the foundational point Lee is is making, and that is the Bible is not meant to be a science book. That's the whole point. You can't, on the one hand say that the Bible is universally true scientifically in all matters, and then when it's not, simply say, oh, well, that's figurative. The Bible's not supposed to be a science book. So you can't have it both ways. And unfortunately, this is where I already completely agree with Lee. There are a lot of Christians out there with the best of intentions who are confusing people, especially young people, because what they're doing is they're going to these same passages that most people would consider figurative. They're going to the Psalms. They're going to Isaiah. They're going to Leviticus. And they're trying to teach young people that the Bible is this great scientific book. And then when you bring up these contradictions with science, the response is, oh, well, that's figurative. That's poetic. When the very verses they're using to try to demonstrate good science is also figurative and poetic. So I I don't deny the fact that a lot of this language, whether we want to accept it as literal or not, is definitely poetic. I don't have any any problem with that, even if you want to go as far to say it's figurative. What we do know is that this is how the ancient Near Eastern people groups wrote and understood things. This is how God through inspiration, inspired his writers uh, to accommodatively describe the cosmos. And this is how, by and large, we see that the Bible understands science. 
But the Bible is not trying to understand science the way we understand science. It's not concerned with that. So when we try to make the Bible a science book, it becomes a flawed book. When we understand that the Bible is not a science book, it is not flawed according to the purposes of God. But if you want to try and say that the Bible is correct in every little thing that it says, you are putting an expectation on the Bible that's not there because these are poetic and figurative statements that are not meant oftentimes to describe real science as we know today. So either way you slice it, 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 we can't go. We can't make the case that the Bible is a good science book. That's not the point of the Bible. <laughs> well, and and I think that's exactly right. But the issue, even then, whenever you have this figurative language and you have these literary or um, figurative statements being made in this literary form. We need to remember that figures of speech arise from literal accountings. You know, whenever we talk about how my heart's just not in it or I love you with all my heart, the heart is not the origin or source of your love. But we need to remember that in that era, they believed that the heart was the source of love, that the heart was the source of some emotions. We need to remember that the bowels were the seat of the emotions for in, in some cultures and in the ancient Israelite culture. They literally believed that that's where that came from, that it became a figure. Because this is a I got into this discussion with somebody. We talked for six and a half hours and we just didn't get anywhere on it. Um, but he kept saying, oh, well, that was as a figure of speech. And I said, well, it is now, but it wasn't then it became one. But all of our figures of speech become figures of speech based on something concrete or something believed to be concrete and literal. And I really like what you said uh, about all of that. I don't have any issue with that, but invariably what people are going to ask is, is, well, what do we do with all of the evidence that exists that proves that the earth is young? Yeah. Let's, because, let's go back to that. So, you know, you kind of started with some, some affirmative arguments going with Genesis, looking at Genesis one and two and why you believe that, Genesis 1 is different than Genesis 2 and that there's two creation accounts that are different that are given there. And then, you know, we spent the the good chunk of this episode just kind of laying a foundation that we shouldn't look at the Bible as this all-encompassing universal factual science book because that's not the way it was written or designed to be written. God didn't inspire his writers to do it that way. So, with that understanding, this almost can, uh, for lack of better words, massage people into the idea that if there are ways in which God uh, can communicate accommodatively based upon the culture at the time, could he have not also done that in other ways, such as going back to creation? So I, I got an email from somebody. I actually received about four or five messages from different people who really took issue with your last episode, and, and they all did so very kindly for the most part. And uh, <laughs> th but but this one individual, he for the most part, he just asked the question, you know, that he he said that it seems like you're assuming that the Earth is old, where he said that it have have not scientists prove proven in Christian science has proven that the earth is actually young. And if so, does that not take away from this whole idea that we have to prove theistic evolution? If we can show that the earth is young, which this particular writer believed that uh, he, he could prove that through other sources, then does that not take out all of this whole argumentation? 
Well, and the thing is, is that paradigm is absolutely 100% correct. If it is proven beyond any shadow of a doubt that the earth is young and only a few thousand years old, then none of this is even necessary. I mean, this is, this is a, a fruitless endeavor. It's a fruitless argument. And it, and it really, at that point, it doesn't matter. And like, it really doesn't matter. And we're going to get into some, when we get into the Q and a, we're going to get into some more specific arguments that relate to a young earth. And I know that we're, we're running over time now, but I really think we can wrap this up pretty quick. Um, but I do want to address one of those things. And one of the issues is, is that whenever you look at the body of science that exists, that proves, and I say that in quotes, a young earth, it's bad science. Um, the measurements and the quality of measurements and the strictness of those measurements and how they're used are not often respected. Oftentimes, whenever these articles and studies are subject to peer review, they fail the peer review process. And it's not because of an ideological difference. There's this idea in religion in general that science is this boogeyman that desires to make everyone an atheist and scientists go to work thinking okay how can i disprove the existence of god today what can i do to really stick it to those fundies and i have no doubt in my mind there's probably some scientists out there that are like that but the vast majority are not and one of these sources that, that I'm about to utilize as we discuss this one concept that, that stands as a representation for the entirety of that question, um, these come from Christian sources. Um, these come from men that are Christians, from people that are scientists, and these are people that believe in Jesus. These are people that love the Bible and that believe in the scriptures and that are living their lives according to Christian precepts. And they believe in an ancient earth. This comes from physics instructors and geologists. And I'm just kind of condensing this down. And we'll talk more about some more specific things in the Q&A episode. But one of the ideas is, is well, if the, if the earth can be proven to be young, well, none of this works. You know, none of this matters. But the issue is, is that there is no real good proof, solid proof that there's a consensus for that the earth is young. And some sedimentary rock layers, if we get into geology, there is some evidence of catastrophism, but that's the exception to the rule. One of the things that's often stated is that radiometric dating, one of the, one of the tools that's used to derive the ages of different um, rocks, whether they're sedimentary, igneous, or metamorphic, that radiometric dating is unreliable. It's unreliable, and you get unreliable results from it, and it can't be trusted. That's one of the things that's often attacked is radiometric dating, and that's kind of what we're going to end this podcast on is just a brief discussion on that. Um, the problem with that is, is that radiometric dating has been proven to be incredibly reliable time and again. Oftentimes people say, well, if you use radiometric dating, carbon 14 is one of those things that, you know, only lasts for about 35,000 years and carbon 14 is going to degrade into carbon 12 and we know it's half-life and that's not going to give you millions of years. Well, Carbon-14 dating isn't used for things that are going to be older than 35,000 years. Now, I'm no geologist. This is not my wheelhouse, but I've read a lot about it. Now, carbon-14 is an isotope. And I don't know if you're familiar with what an isotope is or if our larger audience is, but this is what an isotope is. Is that like a popsicle or something? 
I'm sure there are isotopes that are popsicles and I'd wager they're delicious. Um, but that's not really what we're talking about here within the context. Um, everything <laughs> in the universe <laughs> is made out of chemicals. Everything's made of chemicals and every chemical structure, the core of that chemical structure, every molecule is made up of three parts. You have protons, electrons, and neutrons. Every structure is going to have the same number of protons and electrons. A proton has a positive charge. An electron has a negative charge. A neutron has no charge. So for example, carbon has 12 protons. It has 12 electrons and it has 12 neutrons. But carbon-14 is an isotope. It's still carbon. It still has 12 protons and 12 electrons, but it's unstable because it has 14 neutrons instead of 12 neutrons. Over time, chemicals that are unstable are going to decay and they're going to lose their neutrons. You measure how long it takes for one chemical to lose its neutrons, how long does it take carbon-14? If you have, let's say, 100 carbon-14 molecules in, an, in a given structure, how long will it take for that carbon-14 to lose half of its neutrons, half of those unstable neutrons, those two extras? How long will it take for carbon-14 to get converted to carbon-12? If you measure how long it takes for it to lose half of that, that's referred to as a half-life. So radiometric dating... There's a formula that's used that establishes what half-life is. I have a friend of mine who's a geologist, and I asked him just to be sure, like, how exactly does this work? Give me an explain like I'm five version of how this works. And this is what he sent me. He said, you extrapolate the curve of partial decay. He says, the shape of the curve that's plotted over that timeline is known because we have the full curve for the decay of isotopes with much shorter half-lives, which matches up to the predictive curve that the um, formula predicts. The assumption, and there are people who say, oh, well, you see, you're just assuming, well, we assume a lot of things, is that all isotopes will provide the same shape of decay curve. And whenever this is measured, that holds true across the board. Whether you're talking about something that decays in hours versus something that decays in months versus something that decays in years or something that de decays over decades, they all follow the same curve. It can all be plotted extremely precisely. So with that in mind, whenever you compare radiometric dating against other forms of dating like lake VARs, which are the layers of glacial lake sedimentary deposits or ice core samples that measure the ratio of stuff found in ice cores, some of which are two miles long or two miles deep. When you measure that against the astronomical background uh, microwave radiation levels and astronomical electromagnetic radiation patterns, if you measure continental drift, which is another way that they measure the age of the earth using GPS satellites and coordinates, all of these independent ways to measure the Earth's age, tree rings, things like that, all of them agree that the Earth is incredibly old. So the idea is this, if radiometric dating is an acceptably accurate way to measure the age of the Earth, and it is, what do we do with it? Well, we test it. Well, there are some creation scientists that decided to test this, and the rate project is what took place. This was a young earth creation project that was spearheaded by the Institute for creation research and Cre the creation research society. And this study ran from 1997 to 2005 and rate R A T E is an acronym that stands for radioisotopes and the age of the earth. 
the purpose of that project was to answer the question, if the Earth is only around 6,000 years old, why do radiometric dating methods give results that are much older? This is a project uh, in which the Institute for Creation Research funded $250,000 and they received over a million dollars in donations. So they had over $1.25 million to play with. That's plenty of money for a project like this. And what they found was really interesting. The rate team admitted that there is overwhelming evidence that hundreds of millions of years worth of nuclear decay has taken place since creation. What they found in this, and this was a well-funded study, aligns with what mainline and mainstream geologists have been saying forever, that the earth is incredibly ancient. But then they engaged in special pleading to explain these results in light of their paradigm. Instead of arriving at the conclusion that the earth must be really, really old, they concluded that nuclear decay rates must have been up to a billion times higher in the past. In other words, the, the transition or loss of those neutrons that we can measure that occurs over time, well, it must have happened really fast. One of the main ways in which um, radiometric dating is used for igneous rock is called potassium-40, argon-40 dating. Um, potassium-40 uh, decays down into what's called argon-40 in igneous rock and the half-life, the time it takes for half of the potassium 40 to decay into argon 40 is 1.25 billion years is what's calculated at. And instead of saying, well, it took 1.25 billion years for this to take place. They said, well, it must've just happened really, really fast that it wasn't a uniform process. And during the first two days of creation is when it must've happened. And maybe even during the catastrophe of Noah's flood, now, that sounds like it makes sense. I mean, that, it sounds like that that would be an easy pill for some people to swallow. But the problem is the physics behind that. Radioactive decay is what's called an exothermic process. Exothermic means that it generates heat. And if you want to play with that, if you can get your hands and don't try this at home, it's incredibly dangerous. But if you want to uh, take a chunk of pure sodium, elemental sodium in its metal form and drop it in a cup of water, it explodes. Sodium reacts violently with water, not sodium chloride, but elemental metal sodium. It'll catch on. It catches the water on fire. It puts out heat. That's an exothermic reaction. If this radioactive decay process and it took, and they admit that there's evidence for hundreds of millions of years of this taking place. If the earth is 6,000 years old and it occurred over that 6,000 year period, instead of over 4 billion years of history, that process in all of this radioactive decay that the rate scientists agree takes place, they agree that it did happen and they agree that the evidence follows that timeline that old earth people say it follows. But if it happened over 6,000 years, the earth's surface temperature would have increased by 22,000 degrees centigrade. That's really, really hot. That's almost 40,000 degrees Fahrenheit. That's how much heat would have been generated if this process took place in 6,000 years. That's four times hotter than the surface of the sun, which is just under 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, that's not my math. That's not the naysayers saying this about the rate project. The rate project, and you can look it up, the rate project published this finding themselves. But then they engage in special pleading again to say, well, God must have just supernaturally removed all that heat from the earth. 
They admitted that neither conduction, convection, radiation, nothing would have removed that much heat fast enough, and any cooling process would have had to have cooled the granites and igneous rock a whole lot faster than water could to avoid the oceans from freezing over. And the reason why you're talking about oceans freezing over, and the reason why that's significant is because whenever heat is displaced, we remember the law of thermodynamics, energy can't be created or destroyed. It just changes forms. If water is going to cool all this down, that heat has to go somewhere. If it's drawn out of the water, the water that's not converted to steam is going to freeze. The scientists speculated that about one or two, that there were some possible solutions to the problem, but they involve proposing some new laws of physics that are absolutely absurd that, that physicists have, have discounted as being completely unsupported. They didn't have any evidence whatsoever for any of their conclusions. In the end, they said that the removal of heat must have been supernatural. And that's the issue with the evidence from a young earth creation viewpoint is that to make it fit, you have to engage in special pleading and you have to ignore other aspects of science to make it work. There's a huge body of evidence that exists to the contrary. And it's a body of evidence that I couldn't reconcile. But this process allowed me to do that. So let me ask you just a few quick questions here. So um, hopefully they're easy so, because I just gave you pretty much everything I know about it. So, but go ahead, brother. I want to be completely honest. I, I about 95% of that. I had no idea what you were saying. Not, not, <laughs> not because, not because you didn't do a good job explaining it, but because I just don't really know much about that stuff. And so if someone is listening, and that they hear this and they're like, man, that just doesn't make much sense. Would you say it's safe for them to say you guys are OK? You don't even have to worry about this. Just, you know, this this isn't really then going to be an issue that concerns you because, I, I, you know, I can I know that I did speak to uh, like I said, I was contacted about five, five different people. And, and one person said that a lot of that stuff seemed interesting, but you know, since they really didn't haven't studied it a whole lot, they don't know much about ancient Near Eastern cultures and literature. They don't know much about science. They, you know, that it was interesting, but they just really weren't sure what to make of it. And I just responded to them, well, just keep listening and, you know, just kind of come to your own conclusion. Because once again, if this isn't something that's affecting you, you really don't have any need to explore this topic in, in any further if this isn't something that's concerning you or bothering you. And so would you say that if people are listening to this, and that's that's not really something that bo that's bothering them. Then if everything you just said is like, huh, that that's probably not going to be something they're struggling with to begin with. I, I, yeah, dude, one hundred percent. Because this is basically this answer, and that's a long, drawn out way of answering the question. I'm I'm happy I took as little time to do it as what I thought. I didn't ramble as much as I usually do. But the question is, is well, what about the evidence that exists for a young Earth? And the short answer to that is, is the evidence that exists for the young earth. It's very poor evidence. It's not good science, but could you, that could you give like, a quick, you know, could you just get, and I don't know if that's, you can even do that, but could you give one quick summary? Yeah. Of, of, cause I, I don't, if people are listening to this, oh, well, he just said it's bad science, but anybody can make an accusation. So, you know, you've given reason as to why you believe the earth is, is old. So, when someone comes back and says, okay, well, I heard another guy say a lot of stuff that I don't understand. And, <laughs> and he's saying that it's young. So, you know, I've got a guy who I don't understand saying it's old. I got a guy who I don't understand saying it's young. 
So what would you say just in summary to say, okay, well, here's why the young, the young earthers, from what you understand, why you believe that they ignore a lot of evidence and, and that their argumentation is not good. Could you give like maybe just one, one piece of information or something like that? I will do the best I can to do that. We will get into that in more detail in the Q and a episode. I think that one will really answer that question a little more effectively. Um, if, if that's the direction you want to go with that, I don't, I don't know yet, but if I were to make it really simple, there are two things that I would say. Um, one of them would be the Gulo gene project, which is or not the Gulo gene project, but the human genome project, which found the Gulo gene, by the way, the human genome project was spearheaded by a Christian geneticist who believes in, in evolution. He is a Christian. He is, he's an evangelical Christian man. That being said, the Gulo gene is one of the things that I mentioned in my um, solo episode. Pseudogenes make up the majority of our genetic code. And what a pseudogene is, is it's a gene that's not turned on. The genes that are turned on, we see them expressed. If you have the gene for brown eyes and you have the gene for blue eyes, your brown eye gene is going to turn on and your blue eye gene is not going to turn on. We call that a dominant gene trait. All, most of the genes, the majority of our genes are genes that are not turned on. The Gulo gene is one of those genes. The Gulo gene allows mammals to convert certain things into vitamin C. We have that gene, but it's not turned on. All genes exist on one spot. And I don't know if I'm actually answering your question, but all genes exist in specific locations within our genetic code. In humans, the Gulo gene exists in the exact same place as chimpanzees and orangutans, or not orangutans, gorillas in um, 97% of the time. And in ancient specimens that have been found, I believe it's 84% for chimpanzees and 87% for gorillas. Now here's why the young earth perspective on that is flawed. They're going to say, Oh, well that doesn't prove a common ancestry at all. That doesn't prove common ancestry because it'd have to be way higher than that. Well, there's no science to back up that that's in fact the case because for a lot of us, we share sex chromosomes on like the 23rd chromosome, for example, and we have other areas in which our chromosomes share things, but we don't even have 100% overlap on pseudogene expression with our fellow humans. So it, it, the goalpost gets moved. The measurements aren't respected. With the example that I just used, the reason, one of the reasons why it's bad science is because of the rate project. Another example would be they tried to create new laws of physics or they postulated new laws of physics to try to explain this. They tried to say that all of this radioactive decay, they admit it's there. They recognize it's there. But they said, well, it all took place over, you know, it's all taken place over 6,000 years. And the vast majority of it took place over the first two days of creation. Well, that 22,000 degrees Celsius, 40,000 degree Fahrenheit heat increase it wouldn't dissipate. I mean, that's enough to vaporize the earth. But instead of accepting that for what it is, they're going to exchange or engage in different um, activities to try to explain it away or to try to explain it in a way that fits into their paradigm instead of accepting it for what it is. I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah, no, that's good. I just, just given an example is all I wanted, just so people could see that why you believe that they're not really looking at the the full body of evidence. Would you say then that oftentimes Christian scientists are guilty of looking at selective and limited information? 
Oh, yes. Oh, yes. But here's the thing, dude. Like evolutionary scientists, whether it's geological evolution, astronomical evolution, or, or biological evolution, they're guilty of the same thing. Because in my mind, and, and we'll probably end with this, but in my mind, there is so much evidence that exists in this universe in whatever terms of science you want to discuss that points to the fact that we are divinely created and that there is a divine nature, I guess, not divine nature. That's the wrong term, but that there is, there's evidence that we're created. I mean, the, the nature of the universe itself, the order in the midst of chaos, the complex, the complexity of the universe all of those things, whether we're talking about biological systems or anything else, illustrates that there absolutely is a creator. There has to be. Uh, there's there's no other way it could happen. Random chance, it just doesn't work mathematically. It, it just doesn't pan out that way. But anything that would illustrate that that's the case, whether we're talking about social sciences, whether we're talking about anthropology, whether we're talking about the laws of entropy or what's going on in quantum physics and things like that, that illustrate that there's probably something else going on here more than just random chance. There's a lot of evolutionary scientists that'll dismiss that out of hand, just like there are a lot of young earth creationists that'll dismiss anything that illustrates an old universe out of hand. So both sides are guilty of that. That's not to say that these guys over here in the old earth camp, well, now they're the true scientists. They've got it all figured out. They're not letting their presuppositions cloud their judgment because there are some that do let it cloud their judgment. We all do that. But when you have data that is just as overwhelmingly in support of something that goes against your paradigm as what an ancient earth is, especially with this rate project, to go to cherry picking data points and engaging in special pleading and circular reasoning and postulating absurdities that have no foundation in science whatsoever. That's just a bad look on you. That just doesn't, it just doesn't work. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. I, I hope people who are, are listening um, are at least willing to give, give an ear to what you're saying. So especially those who are, are more apt to discuss these types of things. Yeah, then I, and, then I am. <laughs> well, and really, then I am for that point, too, because I really feel like I butchered geology in that, man, because I'm not a geologist. I've had general physical science. I've, I've read some. I've, I've done some reading. A really good book to read by two Christian men. They're geologists. They're well-researched, and they do research. They taught at the university level is um, the Bible Rocks and Time by Young and Sturley. It is a thick book. It is over 500 pages of gory geological detail. And for some of you, if you're having a hard time going to sleep, that might be just the ticket. But if you're interested in this stuff, that's an excellent resource because these are guys that believe in the scriptures. They believe in the Bible. They believe in God and in Jesus and his redemptive work. And they believe that the geological evidence that God has given us points us to an ancient earth. And that that's the entire point I'm trying to make here is that these are two perspectives and paradigms that don't have to be at war with each other. These are two things. These are two paradigms that can work together and that you can, you can accept both of them. You can be a man of science or woman of science and a man of faith. You can be a person of science and a person of faith. They're not mutually exclusive. And if you're struggling with reconciling that, this is part two of a however many part series it'll end up being of how we can reconcile those things. 
So in our next section, we're going to talk about um, a little bit more theology and a little bit less science, but I look forward to that. Do you have anything else you want to add before we, before we shut her down? Hmm, I'm trying to think of something smart to say, but no, I think everything's good. <laughs> and everything you say is smart. It's either smart or it's smart alecky. So either way it works. Uh, let's right. talk, about, let's well, talk about hell again. I feel, I feel a lot more apt to talk about that subject. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, I think, I, and I think too, this is something that people need to realize that, you know, when, when we're studying topics, everyone is going to have different focus uh, focuses on, on sports specific doctrines and beliefs based upon their own experiences, their own life, what has impacted their life. And that's why it's important we do listen to each other, because when people talk about even true bona fide Bible scholars, those scholars are usually only a scholar in one particular field of the Bible, um, because the Bible is such a wide range of, of fields within itself. I mean, you have so many different topics and you have so many different uh, issues that you can go into great detail with and study that it's it's not enough to say, well, I'm a good Bible student, therefore I know everything there is to know about everything. Uh, it's, well, some people have studied some things more than others and vice versa. And obviously this is something that that Lee has put a lot of time into studying, something that's heavy on on his heart because he started to realize that if he took the approach to the Bible that he had been taught, that he basically was being told you can't be a Christian anymore because you have to read the Bible in this way. And so I'm thankful you have been able to find alternatives to where you've kept your faith in Jesus because you realize that putting your faith in the Bible as this science book that it never even claims to be is just a faulty way of viewing the Bible. Absolutely, man. And I think that's very, very well said. I mean, this line of reasoning saved my faith. And if it weren't for being able to find this reconciliation, the other answers that people have, and if they're satisfying to you, that's awesome. I don't want to overstate that. I don't, well, I, I don't want to make light of that. If other people have found other ways of looking at this that work for them and you found that reconciliation, that is awesome. And I am thrilled for you. This podcast is not for you. This is for people that were in, or maybe that are in the boat that I was in, where those answers that are satisfactory to some, they were not satisfactory to me. And I certainly hope that it can be a blessing for, for those people. And I really hope that it can help others see that you can salvage science and faith. They do work together. They fit together beautifully because science, it shows us the beauty of God's wisdom, the beauty of his of his, the majesty of his intelligence and what he is able to do far beyond what we can even comprehend, because we've just scratched the surface on what we know about this universe and this earth and how it all works. Anyway, if we're going to be honest about it, there's far more that we don't know than we do know. And I think resting in the majesty of God and recognizing his creative power is a good first step. Amen. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this up now. We went even further than I wanted to go, but that's okay. Thank you all for listening. We appreciate you so much. We are now found on more platforms. We are on TuneIn. We are on Amazon Music Podcasts. We are now or will be on Pandora very soon. We're trying to expand our reach and expand our audience. So please share this podcast with anyone that you think would benefit from it. Tell your friends, tell your neighbors. Thank you all so much. We'll see you next time.